My wife went on to South Africa and uh, she is with her mom who's 86 and is frail. And when uh, we're apart, we're apart for about a, a week, I, uh, I have this photo. Isn't she stunner? Um, this is just a sure sign that God is a gracious God and He gives me not what I deserve, much more than I deserve. And uh, so this is Renell. And I look at this photo, it's above my desk and it makes me feel a little closer to her. And uh, I stare at her beautiful sea green eyes that pierce into the depths of my soul <laughs> and give me comfort at the same time. And uh, it's a photo that is, is helpful. Here we go, see? And, uh, but you know, you can't really kiss or hug a photo. I mean, you can, but it, it's kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> and uh, a photo cannot say, Alan, be kind to the flight attendant. A photo can't say that. A photo can't, after you preach, say, my babe, you gave it all you got, you're my hero. You can't, can't do that. A photo is kind of a shadow of the reality. And the writer of the Hebrews keeps on using this idea of shadow and substance, picture, reality. And it keeps on repeating this refrain that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament is a, is a picture of what is fulfilled in the new. And today we're gonna look at how the law and both temple sacrifice was a picture of the real thing fulfilled in Christ. That it was a shadow of the substance that is in Christ. And it's a call to God's people to get out of the shadow of religious ritual and encounter the substance of Christ. It's not a doing away of the old, it's actually recognizing that the old is useful, but it is a shadow, it's a picture of what is the real substance fulfilled in Christ. And this is a repeated refrain. I mean, chapter eight, nine, and 10, repeat this, repeat this, repeat this. And we're gonna dig into how Old Testament temple sacrifice is a shadow of Christ's ultimate sacrifice on the cross. And I wanna ask you, are you holding on to the shadow? Or are you living in the substance? Are you holding on to a picture? Or are you living in the reality of the person of Christ? Hebrews 10, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written for me of me in the scroll of the book. 
when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord, amen. And if you wondered whether this is the word of man or the word of the Lord, there is some amazing support for reading this as the word of the Lord. There's two Old Testament passages quoted. The one is Psalm 50. And the writer of the Hebrews says that Christ said, and then Psalm 40. In other words, he wrote this saying, it's Christ who said Psalm 40. And then he goes on to quote Jeremiah 15. And, and, and he says, and the Holy Spirit testifies. In other words, he's saying, this word is God breathed. It's Christ, it's the Spirit, it's the Father. And I wonder if we could receive it, not just as the word of man, but as the word of God, amen? It's able to change us and save us and build us up. And this repeated refrain here, the writer of the Hebrews was writing to a Jewish audience who had put their faith in Christ, but because of persecution were sliding back to Judaism, to the law, perhaps even to temple sacrifice. And it's interesting in verse 11, it, it talks in the present tense. Every priest stands daily, repeatedly making sacrifice. In other words, that dates the book of Hebrews to before AD 70, a little fun historical fact, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. And so the commentators say, it's written in the present tense, like priests in Jerusalem are making sacrifices in the temple repeatedly day, and day to day when this is written. In other words, it was written before the temple was destroyed. And so these Jewish Christians were sliding back towards the law and to temple sacrifice. And this chapter is written to assure them that Christ is a better sacrifice that those temple sacrifices are a shadow, but Christ is the substance. Now you and I don't bring goats and bulls to sacrifice, but I want us to think about whether we tend to bring guilt offerings to God without assurance and confidence that our sins have been sacrificed for and forgiven. So the law was given to Israel and it was a very simple law, the Ten Commandments. I mean, it was straightforward. Thou shalt not murder, steal, covet, lust, commit adultery, etc. And no one disagreed that the law was good. I mean, no one would say, you know, it's really good to covet. 
No one would say that. No one would say it's really good to commit adultery. They affirmed it with their heart and mind, but no one was able to live up to it. Everyone broke it, even the holy people, even those that sinned unintentionally, even the priests broke it. And so God made this provision of sacrifice, first with the tabernacle in Moses' time, where if someone sinned and realized, I've sinned unintentionally, they brought an animal. And there was kind of a a descending order of sacrifice depending upon your wealth. So if you were really, really wealthy, you'd bring a bull. That's why it it talks about bulls. If you were not as wealthy, but pretty, pretty well off, you'd bring a goat and then a lamb. And then if you were poor, you brought two turtle doves. And it's interesting that Joseph and Mary, when they came to the temple, Luke 3, they brought two turtle doves to sacrifice for their sin. In other words, Jesus was not born into wealth and privilege. If you were really, really poor, you brought just a bag of flour. But no one came without a sacrifice. At the door of the tabernacle was this table, this altar of sacrifice, and you handed it to the priest who would slaughter it, or if it was a bag of flour, he'd chuck some into a fire and keep keep the rest. But no one approached God without a sacrifice. The sacrifice reminded people that they were sinful and atoned, covered their sins. But what this writer was saying is that that sacrifice was insufficient. It didn't bring sufficiency in terms of assurance. Didn't bring a confidence to approach God's presence. It actually left people just remembering their sins. It didn't take away sins. It just reminded. And and he says this in verse 11, day after day. And verse one, year after year, the priest had to keep on making sacrifices. Why? Because the sacrifice couldn't take away sin. That's what it says. It couldn't take away sin. There was no assurance of forgiveness of sin. You kept coming, but you never got healed. It was These sacrifices were almost like taking an ibuprofen and you had lung cancer. It provided temporary relief, but after the ibuprofen wears off, you left, not just with the pain, but but with this deadly condition. And so the writer to the Hebrews is saying, these sacrifices, they did something, but they didn't do enough. It created this kind of religious ritual that didn't leave people with assurance of forgiveness or change of the human heart. And you know what it was? It was actually job security for the priests. Day after day, they never stop sacrificing. Here's an interesting thing. There were no chairs in the tabernacle, none. You had to stand up all the time. The priests had to stand up all the time. Why were there no chairs? Because the priest's job was never done. Day after day, year after year, You'd have to sacrifice and keep sacrificing. Maybe maybe for priests that was quite encouraging, but for the people it wasn't encouraging. When is this work of sacrifice gonna be over? And verse two says, these sacrifices were not able to make the people perfect. And that word perfect is not morally perfect. It means whole or complete or, or faultless. In other words, they didn't, give them right standing before God. There was an insufficiency. 
And so enter Jesus. Verse five, it says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. That body was God the Son taking on human flesh, saying, here I am. I am willing to take on a body and live a sinless life and die an unjust death with a spotless, unblemished body not just for those who sinned unintentionally, but for the chiefest, the worst of intentional sinners. The thing I love about this description of Christ's sacrifices, He didn't say, I'm gonna go to earth and I'm gonna find the most spotless lamb. He said, no, I will sacrifice myself. Here I am. You didn't des desire bulls. You desired a body. So with my own body, I will sacrifice. And the writer of the Hebrews describes his sacrifice as once for all, for all time. I want us to think about that because many of us here have believed in the gospel, but I don't know if we realized the extent to which the sacrifice is stunning and beautiful and rich and profound. There's more, beloved, there's more, amen? Once and for all, contrasted to repeated, repeated sacrifices, day after day, year after year. Christ, when He died on the cross, His final words were, tetelestai, it is finished. No more sacrifices. God was saying through Christ, the store is closed for sacrifice. Like, no more blood needs to be spilled. The blood of my Son, His body is enough. And it's not just enough for unintentional sinners. It's enough for intentional sinners. Think about Barabbas, the guy who was released so that Jesus would be crucified. I mean, he was a murderer and a rebel. Think about the, the thief on the cross where Jesus says, this day you will be with me in paradise. These are the most intentional, immoral sinners. Once and for all. It's so easy to go, oh yeah, yeah, Alan. I mean, he's kind of a pastor. He's kind of sanctified. Of course, the sacrifice is for him, but I'm beyond the sacrifice. I mean, if you knew what I'd done, but actually it's once and for all. His blood reaches to the deepest and darkest sinner. And then it says once and for all and for all time. Isn't that beautiful? Verse, verse 12 and 13 says, by one sacrifice, He has perfected for all time. All time. Just think about that. None of us were born when Christ made His sacrifice on the cross. None of us were born, therefore none of us could have sinned. And it's very easy for, for us to go, oh yeah, 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 Jesus forgave my past sin, but what happens if at some point I just lose it and sin so badly in the, in the future that I just lose my salvation? It says, no, once and for all and for all time. In other words, Christ's sacrifice extends to your past and your present and your future. There is nothing that you're gonna do in the future that Christ has not already paid for. And you say, well, well, Alan, that's arrogant. No, it's arrogant to not believe that. 
It's arrogant to think that I am the one person whose sin can't be covered by the blood of Christ's sacrifice. No, in the future, your sin is paid for. And you know what that should do for you and I? It should cause us to be deeply rested. The thing I love about Christ's sacrifice versus temple sacrifice, there were no chairs in the tabernacle. But verse 13 says that that when Christ had made one sacrifice for all time, He sat down. Isn't that beautiful? He sat down. Thank God there is a chair in heaven. There's a chair in heaven. I love chairs. Like my favorite chair is the Eames chair. My, my wife, the lady in the picture, in reality, she once for my birthday, she knew I loved Eames chairs. She went out to Bakersfield to find a secondhand Eames chair. It's like this awesome like leather rocker from the 70s with a footrest and everything. I love chairs. I would have hated the tabernacle. Just standing room only. Well, in the heavenly tabernacle, there is a chair. And Christ sat down. Why? Because He completed His sacrifice. Never having to stand up again. He sat down. It is finished. My work, my priestly work is done, said Jesus. I've done it. And I wanna say, if that doesn't bring us rest, what will? He sat down so that we can sit down. Because that's what happens is like we sin and we mess up and then we, we go like, okay, I must bring a guilt offering. You know, I must put a little bit more money in the offering or, or work in children's ministry or work in the food bank. Or, and I'm just saying like, please do that. We need that. But if you doing that as your guilt sacrifice, essentially you asking Jesus to stand up and be that priest that receives your sacrifice that will make God love you. And I'm just saying, you never ever need to do that. He has sat down for all time. And that's why it says, God does not desire sacrifice. He doesn't want your bull. He wants your body. He wants you. He's not after your sacrifice, He's after your heart. So when you serve Him, you're not serving Him to make Him love you because by one sacrifice, He has made you perfectly pleasing. God is saying, when I see you, even with your junk, I see my son's sacrifice and you are perfectly pleasing. And I'm never gonna stand up to receive your guilt offering. I've sat down, now you sit down too. You rest. Isn't that beautiful? So when we come, we come like that old hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. And I wanna say this is a dangerous word because you can abuse this amazing sacrifice. Because California, we love us some greasy grace, don't we? I mean, we love us some like, oh, it's just been paid. I can live as if I please. I can do what I want and I sin and I come to Jesus and say, you paid a sacrifice, it's finished, awesome. And I'll go sin some more. It's so easy to abuse this grace, but that is what is so outrageously good about grace. It can be abused. You can abuse it. Because for all time, He's made us perfect. 
But if we really get it, we won't abuse it. We will say, what a precious Savior. What a precious grace. I'm not bringing my guilt offering, but I'm bringing my body and presenting it to you as a living sacrifice. I'm yours, God, because you've given yourself to me. That's grace. That's grace. Sacrifice is better because it makes us perfectly pleasing. Secondly, is, is sacrifice is better because it affects heart change. It affects heart change. If we read probably the, the bleeding heart of this passage, is verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Beloved, this is a holy tension that we must live in. By a single sacrifice, he has perfected. Perfected means made pleasing, whole, complete. That doesn't mean you are morally perfect. It means in God's sight, because you are hidden in Christ, you are perfectly pleasing. We gotta press that into our hearts, beat it into our heads, says Martin Luther, beat the gospel into our heads. I'm perfectly pleasing by one sacrifice. But then it says, those who are being sanctified. Say sanctified. Sanctified is different from pleasing. Sanctified actually talks about in actuality that I'm becoming more like Christ. I'm becoming more set apart. And that happens, how many of us know that doesn't happen in an instant? The church that I was raised in believed in sinless perfection because we were a Wesleyan and Wesley preached that. In other words, like this side of the grave, you can get to absolute moral perfection. And I would just go like if, I mean, very early on, I realized this is not happening. Like if anyone comes and says, I believe in sinless perfection, you know what you do? You just like stand on their toe and see what they do. Like very quickly, you'll realize, no, there's some imperfection in you, right? The reality is sanctification, this process of becoming more like Christ, it's possible because of Christ's one sacrifice, but it's progressive, right? And we live in this holy tension of, because of one sacrifice, we are perfectly pleasing in God's sight, but through that one sacrifice, we are ongoingly progressively sanctified. We are becoming more like Him. And that's where this, incredible, incredible word is so mysteriously good. Where the writer of the Hebrews talks about Psalm 40, here I am, I have come to do your will. And it says Jesus is saying that. And what he's wanting us to understand is this is pointing to Jesus' wrestle in the garden of Gethsemane. He was sent, the Son of God, taking on flesh, living a sinless life. On His way to the cross, He gets into the wrestle of His life where He asks, Oh God, if it be Your will, 
Take this cup from me. I don't want to die. I don't wanna give my body as a sacrifice. I'd rather not. God, can you just offer a bull or a goat, please? Not me. And he's in the wrestle of his life, sweating drops of blood. And he resolves it with reverent submission. He says, but not my will, but yours be done. Here I am, God. I've come to do your will. What that is talking about is sanctification. Hebrews actually says, the son learned obedience. And, and because he actually won through and chose God's will, not his, that Gethsemane power is yours and mine when we are faced with Gethsemane wrestles. God, I want this. I want this. I don't want your will. I want my will. But actually Christ, Christ's wrestle is available to us to settle on, here I am, God. I've come to do your will. That's sanctification. We've traveled quite a bit with Brian and Rachel Barr. Brian and Rachel planted about 15 years ago out of this church into Texas, Houston. And their church is just growing so fast, they're doing so well, but we're part of the global team that gives leadership to advance. And to be honest, while travel is a privilege, like the novelty has really worn off, and especially traveling to England, and I, I, I love England, but everything's small. Like the cars are small, like I bump my head so often getting in and out of cars just groaning and moaning and the beds are small and lumpy and the food isn't great. Sorry, Sam and Becky, it's just not. And I mean, you're meeting with leaders day in, day out, leading conferences and it's a privilege, but it's, it's sacrificial. And, and Rach arrives and she just declares to us, this is my last trip. Enjoy it because I'm never traveling again. I don't wanna leave my Texas. I don't wanna leave my church. I don't wanna leave my home. I don't wanna leave my kids. I don't wanna leave my bed. This is it. And we're just going like, oh, Rach. I mean, she's such a force. They're like, we need you. And we're trying, to, we're trying to plead with her. Rach, don't do that anyway. She's just like, this is my last trip. On the last day of the conference, this British lady comes to her She's around 65. She comes, says, Rachel, do you remember praying for me? Rachel's like, no, I don't. She said, three or four years ago, you came to my church and you prayed for me. And as you prayed for me, I had horrific flashbacks of being abused as a child. And suddenly Rachel remembers praying for this lady. And she reminds her that it was so dramatic that she fainted went into a stupor and had to be taken to a hospital. It was dramatic. And there began a healing process from abuse as a child, the trauma of abuse. And she just said to Rachel, Rachel, because you prayed for me, Jesus began to meet me and I am healed. It was amazing. <laughs> and Rachel was like, yes, dang it. She comes back that night and she just says, who am I to say, I'm never gonna travel again if God will use me in that way? And I said, I told you so, I didn't, I didn't. She would, <laughs> she would have beaten me. But, but she was in this Gethsemane moment. 
But actually Jesus' sanctifying power was available to her at that time. Jesus' sanctifying power was available to that woman. I mean, that late woman was perfectly pleasing before she was healed of trauma from abuse, but actually God didn't just wanna leave her in positional sanctification. She wanted to progressively bring her into actual sanctification from the picture to reality, from the shadow to the substance. God wants to bring you into that. Sometimes travel is what reveals how unsanctified I am. To be honest, like whenever I travel, my idols of comfort and my idols of entitlement are revealed. Kathy Keller says this crazy thing. I think it's crazy good, but she says, pull up your uncontrollable emotions and you'll find your idols clinging to them. And I find, man, when I'm cooped up in a small little lumpy bed or a car, my idol of comfort. I mean, who knew? My idol of entitlement. Some churches, when you go, treat you better than others. And the lady in the picture sometimes helps me to realize, hey, I think that's your idol. And that's a moment to come and just say, Jesus, I know that I'm perfectly pleasing to God because I'm covered in your blood sacrifice. But Lord, I don't wanna just live in the picture. I wanna live in the reality. Please, Jesus, won't you cleanse me? Please, Jesus, won't you, won't you take these idols? Put them on the altar. See, some of you have accepted the first part of the sacrifice. I'm perfectly pleasing. But you're just going, this is me. I can't change. This is just who I am. Let's just keep it real now. I've tried to break out of these cycles. This is just me. And Jesus is just saying, there's more. There is more. And it might not be as dramatic as the lady falling over and going to hospital, but it might be like a Rachel moment or a me moment where you realize there's some idols here. And actually Jesus' sanctifying power is available for me to break out of these cycles. Some of us do personality tests and Enneagram. And I mean, I'm all for that stuff, but I'm, I'm telling you, that's not just you for all time. That's a glimpse into how you're wired. But if you start to use that as an ex example of like, well, this is just me and I can't change that. You're not realizing how powerful his sacrifice is. He wants to break us out. And finally, I just, I love this probably most of all. Christ's priestly sacrifice continues for us in heaven. It continues for us in heaven. Verse 12 says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So on the one hand, his work is finished. His priestly work is finished. He's never gonna stand up and go to the cross again. He never needs to make an earthly sacrifice ever again. But it doesn't mean that Jesus is not working. As a heavenly priest in a heavenly tabernacle, Jesus is sitting saying, my earthly work is done. But Hebrews 7 says, as a sympathetic high priest, he always lives to intercede for us. In other words, he's still got a day job. 
night job. It carries on 24-7. He's living to, he's, he's seated. Never have to make a sacrifice. But Lord, I am praying, Father, what's, what's left hand and right hand? Okay, Father, I'm at your right hand. Let's get it right. Father, I am praying that my people, my sons and daughters, that I purchased with my sacrifice, that they would live fully in what I've done for them. God, they, they've only got like a, a tenth of it. There's more. God, I'm praying that they would live more fully into the grace for them. God, I'm praying that they would lay hold of, of the power of the cross, the power of justification, the power of sanctification, the power of adoption, the power of expiation that He's cleansed us from the stain, not just of sins that we've committed, but sins done against us like that lady. I don't think we realize that there's more and Jesus is praying that we will live more fully in what He's done for us. That's why the, the church needs to hear the gospel again. It's not just for the lost out there, it's for us, there's more church. And He is praying. And it says, having sat down, verse 13, He says, He sat down in the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for Him. So His sacrifice on the cross is done, but His priestly sacrifice of praying is still going. That word, He's waiting patiently. It's not just like, when am I gonna return? When am I gonna destroy sin and death and Satan? When am I gonna do it? Waiting patiently, it's the word to wait with active anticipation. In other words, like Jesus is leaning forward on His chair. He's praying, He's longing that His death and resurrection would be consummated in His return. And He's saying, my people are living between my death and resurrection and my return, and not everything is under my feet yet. Sin is still powerful. Satan's still at work. Death is still at work. There's injustice. There's depression. There's divorce. There's suicide. There's deception. And he's saying, I am praying, I'm waiting in anticipation for the time when these things will be placed under my feet. Beloved, Jesus is sitting, but it says he's waiting for the day when his enemies would be like a footstool. One day, Jesus is gonna make a footrest out of sin, Satan, and death. He's gonna make an ottoman out of it. He's saying, I've finished my work on earth, but one day I will put my feet up because everything sad has come untrue. And the thing is, you see, we live in this gap between the finished work of Christ on the cross and the finished work of Christ in His return. And therefore we live with brokenness, don't we? We still live with sin and death and injustice. And we still live with deception and depression and the brokenness of marriage and family. And we still live with hateful acts of murder against children in the womb. And we still live with hateful acts of murder against innocent people in the shopping mall in Buffalo. And that wrecks Jesus' heart. And as the church, both should wreck our heart. 
but it shouldn't make us hopeless. We should say, he who sat down, he who completed the sacrificial work on the cross, one day he will put his feet up. And all of those things will be like a footrest to him. So we live with great hope in between that and that, in between the chair and the footrest. We live with great hope saying, Jesus, your work is done, but you're not finished. You are bringing all things under your feet and we are with you. We're on the winning side. And that's not triumphalistic to say that. We still live with brokenness. But one day he will triumph over every single one of his enemies. Amen. So let's come back to the picture. Are you living with the picture? You living in empty religious ritual? Or are you living in the reality? Are you living in the shadow? Or are you living in the substance? Jesus wants to bring you into the substance of what he's done. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for your once, for all, for all time sacrifice. Thank you, Jesus, that we can rest knowing that if we've put our faith in your sacrifice, there is no sin we will commit in the future that will snatch us from your hand. You have made perfect for all time through one sacrifice, and we just want to rest. Forgive us for bringing our guilt offering rather than resting in your offering. Jesus, we just confess that we get so desperately hopeless about our patterns of sin. We thank you that your sacrifice breaks us out of cycles of sin. That through that sacrifice, we are able to progressively become more like you. And Jesus, I pray that you would break in today. Set people free. Just, I, I have such a sense that, that the Lord actually wants to heal people from abuse, both physical and sexual, towards you, that you're still living with trauma. And, and, and the Lord wants to meet with you. His grace is available. It's not just like, well, this is how I'm going to be for all of time. No. There is more. There is more. So Jesus, please come and meet with those who are suffering from sins committed against them. Break them out, Jesus. Jesus, our hearts break at the brokenness of the world. Our hearts break at what happened yesterday in Buffalo and what's happened in millions of wombs. We long for your kingdom to come and make those things right. Long to be a church that sees your light pushing back darkness. And we thank you that we can hope in you because one day those things will be a footrest for you. And then we just ask that you would give us hope that your kingdom is coming. 
Before I hand back over to Kirk, I want to give you an opportunity if you say, I, I've been living in, in the picture. I've got some sort of shadowy picture of Jesus, but I'm so longing to come into reality, into the substance. I've kind of been doing the religious ritual thing. I want to come out of that into reality. And it might even feel religious to raise your hand, but raising your hand is just a way of saying, enough, enough already. I, I want to break out. I want to, I want to meet with you, Jesus. Why don't you raise your hand if that's you? I'd love to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Can I just ask where you are? Just pray in your heart, in your own words, Jesus, I'm receiving your sacrifice. It's for me by faith. Thank you, Jesus, that it's for all. There's none of you that are beyond a sacrifice. And that is for all time. There's no day that you were at your darkest that a sacrifice cannot reach. It's for all time. So you who raise your hands, just take your darkest day. And you say, Jesus, your sacrifice reaches even to me on that day. And so Jesus, won't you flood, won't you flood these sons and daughters with your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.